Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news of the week. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief. I am joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo and Business Reporter Demi Corbin. Hello, you two. This week, we are going to be talking about land-based salmon. It is maybe the hottest topic in aquaculture right now, um, not only because there are so many major investors now looking at the space, but also because there's increasing belief among the industry that that this is for real, that they, there can be um, a, real, uh, a real contribution to the overall uh, global salmon supply. So we had a great panel discussion and webinar earlier this week. Uh, great lineup. We had Eric Haim from uh, Nordic Aqua Farms Inc., Brian Vinci from the Freshwater Institute, uh, Carl Emil Johannesson from Pareto Securities, uh, Bjarni Halt Olson from Billund, and Pa Allenting, who's Petterson from OxyGuard. Uh, and we were able to hit on a really wide range of topics. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend that you uh, go to our site and find it. You can find the full recording there uh, and, and take a look at it. Um, but why don't we go ahead and jump in with you, Demi. What were your kind of big takeaways? I thought that there were some some really interesting things that I hadn't heard before about where the industry is headed uh, and its challenges. But what were just give me give me one of your um, one of your big thoughts. Yeah, so it was a very interesting webinar, and we heard a lot. And my main concern is that when, when we're talking about land-based, there's a lot of challenges in the sense that we have off-flavor issues, we have stocking density issues, and those are things that all of the panelists were trying to uh, say aren't that big of a deal anymore and that we found ways to, to kind of move about them. And the main concern right now is that we just want to increase production of salmon, obviously. And it's all about being close to market, especially with COVID, because land-based seems to be more of an advantage right now because of where you can uh, invest in a location and then it's close to the market. One main concern right now uh, that I thought a lot of the audience were, were asking about is attracting talent to the land-based salmon sector and who can actually work in it. So the main concern right now is how can we bring in more people to actually advance and progress this even quicker uh, to match all those uh, pr pr to match all those numbers that we are thinking we're going to start producing by 2030 or whatnot. Um, and that was interesting because it seems that we are trying to bring in people from very different sectors. So it's not necessarily just the aquaculture experts that are going to fit within the land-based kind of space, but anyone from the oil and gas industry to other maybe even uh, FMCG industries. Um, so the nice thing about this is because it's a very booming industry right now that everyone wants to take a piece of it and everyone wants to try their luck. And it's requiring a lot of skill set and a lot of people want to, to hop into it. I think the phrase "try your luck" is the perfect one for the land-based salmon farming industry right now because it it is a gamble. And the experts that we had on the panel, I thought we had a nice uh, a nice diverse uh, panel that was able to give um, not just the financial and um, social license and uh, and kind of downstream market side viewpoint, but also the technical uh, viewpoint as well. And I, I really appreciated the frankness, uh, honestly. I, I know they're all positive about it, but 
but they're they're pretty clear-eyed about what the obstacles are. Um, I always enjoy having Eric Heim on panels. Um, number one, he's always up for some tough questions, but also I think he brings a perspective um, about it, having been very far along in the uh, in the permitting and planning process in Maine, dealing with opponents to it. Um, just all the roll up your sleeves, boring work of getting these projects off the ground. I think he's got a better sense of that and understands the patience that's required. Um, but John, tell us a little bit, kind of, what was your impression of how, uh, how the investment community is being viewed in these big investments that have come in from Dong Wan and Nasui and and others. How do you think the panelists sort of viewed those investments? Well, uh, you know, on one hand, it, it shows uh, a real amazing faith in where this technology ultimately will go. Uh, hopefully, uh, on the other hand, it's a lot of people jumping into a space they may not know a ton about, and that's why, uh, for me, my big takeaway was. Uh, Brian Vinci's uh, remark towards the end when you asked him about hurdles uh, facing the industry. And he said, above all, it needs a major success story. And I think he's entirely right. I mean, Sapphire is kind of, Atlantic Sapphire is kind of considered the guy, you know, the company that's going to be the big success story. But as we know, they, you know, they have their challenges and they just had a large um, situation where they've had to uh, emergency harvest a bunch of fish. And so there is on the investor side and on the aquaculture side and the industry side, there is all this enthusiasm for it. And, and rightly so. This is this is game changing if it goes the way everybody thinks it could go. Um, on the other hand. We're not producing any fish yet in any quantity. So um, it hasn't disrupted the model of net pens, which uh, at this point uh, looks as the best possible solution we have for raising a lot of salmon, although that's running out of you know space and capacity as well. So, But yeah, I think this uh, Brian's comment about we need a major success story. And you brought up Eric Heim. I, I love the part it was a small part, but he answered a question about, um, you know, citing these farms, like how to get the the land and all the resources you need to put one of these farms somewhere. And, you know, his point was, it's not easy. And it's not easy just physically to get the piece of land that has the water volumes and all that. But it's not easy, as he expressed, too, because as he's seeing in Maine, oh boy, you know, people don't want it in their backyard. Imagine that. So um, I just thought that was interesting. And I, I, I don't think we hear a lot about that as far as the difficulties in, uh, that, that entails. So those were two of my, my takeaways. I think it's interesting what you say about uh, about uh, land and what Eric was talking about with, with that, because that is increasingly the real compelling part about land-based salmon farming. Um, you could argue from a sustainability point of view, if you look at uh, carbon footprint and things like that, there there's a a real case that land-based salmon farming is more sustainable. 
Um, but then you could also make a case that um, having fish swimming in their natural habitats without uh, without adding a lot of uh, a lot of the energy required, a lot you know the freshwater usage that's required for land-based salmon, you could argue that that um, that conventional net pens still have uh, an edge there. But the biggest, I think, argument becomes financial, of course. And looking at this week, it's very interesting. The, um, the Norwegian government uh, went through a salmon farming license auction um, this past week. And the, volume, the amount of money that was spent on the, uh, on the volume that was, that was auctioned, there was around uh, 5.9 billion Norwegian kroner uh, was spent so roughly 550 million euros 650 million dollars um, that tells you that the amount of money that people are willing to pay and need to pay for production capacity uh, in the ocean is just getting higher and higher and higher and there will be uh, there will be limitations on space increasing limitations on space being whether it's financial or regulatory. And so with land-based production, you're just buying land from a private person. And you I'm not saying it's simple, but you, you have to go through uh, getting freshwater permits and you know uh, emissions and uh, all the kind of same things that you need to evaluate when you're putting any factory or plant up on, on land. But that said, that, that private land part of it that becomes the real compelling part i think for land-based salmon is you don't have to pay these exorbitant exorbitant fees for uh production um so i think there's really going to be an, uh, an edge there demi i want to go back to what you said about um about being close to market and we didn't get a chance to talk too much about that but um, but we, you know, we, we've covered and, and written loads about it, particularly you. Um, but what kind of advantage do these uh, land-based operations, how are they viewing the, uh, the advantage of being um, closer to market in, like you said, in this COVID time and in sort of a uh, focus on local production? Well, obviously, with COVID, we've seen a lot of disruptions to, to the value chain and to the supply chain that it seems like it makes more sense logistically to have something that's very close to market. And another thing, for example, you, you can you can raise salmon in areas where you can't usually access salmon and it just makes it much easier, especially when you're looking at the United States, for example, you have a huge market, but yet it's difficult to get salmon to the market very fresh and, and, and very easily. So then land base is basically just overstepping that, uh, that kind of hurdle. And, and also at the same time, you see a lot of potential for land-based salmon farms uh, in areas away from the U.S. You have China, for example, in the Middle East, where maybe the consumption market isn't that big, but if you do have it there and it's close to market, then you have the ability to access a market that you couldn't have accessed if, if it wasn't for a land-based kind of facility, uh, especially with the rising costs uh, to, to ship things and the disruptions, because you never know if something like COVID might happen again or for how long COVID might last. So all this kind of links that are broken up seems like land-based can kind of solve them. 
Yeah. You know, and it, what's interesting, too, is I think that there there does seem to be some um, some people recognizing that land-based salmon can be something to market. I know Atlantic Sapphires really tried to push the, the kind of the, the Blue House brand, that concept. I don't know if that'll catch on, but I do think the idea of locally raised uh, fish is something so many people have tried throughout the years to use as a branding hook. But there may be a little bit more to it this time around because I do think you have big companies that are interested. And um, John, you wrote a story on uh, Acme, who's who is the um, the largest salmon smoker in the United States. They are partnering with Atlantic Sapphire on um, the first land-based smoked salmon. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, they uh, they recently uh, struck a deal that. Uh, you know, Acme will smoke the fish and uh, push it through their sales uh, network. It'll be branded uh, under the Blue House under uh, Sapphire's brand. And uh, yeah, it's it's the second one uh, that came in 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 last week. Uh, uh, there's another, uh, you know, another one that's going to do the same thing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just it's just more movement down the value added chain for these products which seems natural but you know i want to <laughs> i want to go back to the webinar real quick one more time because brian vinci i think um he i like what he said about buyers having no tolerance for off flavor so it doesn't matter if they're smoking it or selling it in fillets or whatever if it if it's got that flavor in it and we've learned that from catfish for sure but if it's got that off flavor in it it's it's doa right so but with that said there is a process to take care of that but it's not a simple process and one thing if i heard brian right it's it's basically has to be tailored to each operation so there's not something you can get from billand that just is a one size fits all solution to it you know purging tanks or whatever it may be so that scares me a little bit because that's a quality control consistency problem with flavor. And, mm, you know, that, that, that can be a problem, you know, that can be a problem. What if, what if you got a whole tank and, you know, you sample it and it's off flavor, what do you do? Do you throw it away? Do you send it to the food bank? I, I don't know what you do with it. Right. So eh, that, that gives me pause. Yeah, and I think that that actually will undercut that that premium message, right? And I, we've seen this before, where um, the sustainable story can sometimes trump the quality uh, yeah. or the focus on quality, and that just will not be tolerated here because you don't have multiple. It's such a narrow, focused uh, sales pitch that you have that you're uh that you're going to sell the absolute freshest salmon uh you're going to get it to market really quick in the same way that you could say today's fresh catch and you see that kind of advertised people uh people should be able to advertise that and i think that's what these producers are counting on but um again it all comes down to the fish on the other side you're going to put this in your mouth uh, if you have this amazing sustainability story, 
and and I want to say that I think that that land-based salmon farming is is one of the most exciting things that we've seen um, come out of the seafood industry in a long, long time. And and I really admire um, I, I really admire the pluck and the enthusiasm and the um, the optimism about the sector. I do think it's going to change. Uh, and disrupt the entire salmon farming system to a certain extent. But, again, the excitement of the technology, the excitement of um, the concept cannot overshadow and cannot make up for uh, the quality of fish because ultimately uh, a consumer is going to uh, just want to buy some salmon. The story may help. Uh, the story may get you get your foot in the door with certain retailers who have the ability to market that a bit more or high-end chefs who have the ability to market that a bit more. But they simply will not do it if the flavor is not matching that, that marketing uh, strategy of, of marketing a, a pristine, super high-quality fish. And I don't know... Uh, I don't know how solved it, 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 it is. I think that the panelists, uh, I think, you know, Bjarni from Billen said, we're close. We're close to solving it. Um, some people have said, uh, you know, no, we still have a long way to go. We don't know enough about it. Brian's team at Freshwater Institute, they've been working on this for a long time. They've been looking at purging and things like that that are, um, freshwater purging that can can get some of that flavor out of it. So I think there's some, you know, in theory there there's uh, there's ways around it, but it does seem like it's. Uh, I don't understand the process of how you know as you're getting closer to harvest. Um, how do you know that you're going to not have those uh, those flavors? And I guess some of that is sampling and testing, but. Like you said, John, if you've got a, a tank full of fish, you have a couple hundred thousand fish, and they're not up to that standard of quality, you've lost your premium, and I don't really then see who your market is, like you just said. Um, well, yeah. just real quick. So, I mean, depending on how that problem gets solved, but if it, if it continues to be a problem across the sector, then you've kind of not been able to scale, right? So this becomes more of a boutique type of thing than it does, you know, what what they throw out there, 200 to 300,000 uh, metric tons uh, a year, something like that is kind of the what's considered a, a reasonable target by 2025, I think, or 2030, I can't remember. But um, you've got to scale to get there, right? So yeah. if, if you're... <laughs> If you're dumping tanks every five tanks because the fish aren't, you know, tasty, you're not getting the scale as far as I can tell. But, you know, uh, so then you slide back into that kind of boutique, which is fine, um, you know, if you're a boutique type of outfit like that. But that that isn't the promise of this technology. I don't think we're it's promising to be unique, like Demi said, from a sustainability point of view but also be able to scale. So we'll see. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, the, the, the promise is, uh, is the promise that these investors are banking on, right? Um, that, that promise, that hope, that gamble is what's driven 
Atlantic Sapphire up to the market cap that it's at. It's why Onfjord Salmon has been, uh, their shares have been rising sharply on the Mercure market in, in Oslo. And there'll be more people that are going to list and take advantage of this this time. I'm always a little bit, um, you know, maybe it's the history after you've been covering the industry for so long and seen so many failures. I'm always... I'm always interested in in investor reactions, and I feel like the seafood industry just really struggles with this. Is they'll they'll reach a level where investors will pile in um, and and see the promise, and then somehow something goes wrong, and a lot of people get cold feet and jump out. So I'm just curious when, as these failures continue, and I think everyone anticipates there'll be more failures, maybe not to the scale that. We've seen some of Atlantic Sapphire's failures, but as they continue, I'm just curious how uh, patient investors will be with their with their capital. Um, so it should be interesting to see if it continues to get that financing. Um, Demi, any final thoughts on the webinar, and you know what uh, what um, people should be taking away from what the experts talked about. Actually, I'm I'm gonna take advantage of of pulling the millennial card right now. Oh because... boy! <laughs> Here we go. Here we, know, we Demi, go. We know you're young. We get it. We're old. You're young. No, we got no. it. The thing is, is that with with land-based salmon, so you're discussing quality and you're discussing off flavor, and I get it. I get that this quality issue is really big for for the industry to make big strides, but at the same point i i want to say that even if the salmon is produced to a level that does not match a net pet pen salmon i think the idea and the story behind it the fact that you're banking on all this sustainability image is gonna attract all those millennials who mostly care about carbon footprint and whether their food was raised sustainably because then you can argue and bring in plant-based seafood does it taste exactly like seafood no not really but yet they do want to eat that and they do want to make that part of their diet because they think that's that's the easier way to go for the environment and for the planet so this is something that generally you should also consider when 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 you're discussing quality of course we need a hundred percent amazing quality and we need to get rid of that off flavor but this does require patience and i think that Investors are being generally a bit more patient because the technology is sort of new. We we can't say that it's advanced to a level where this is it. And we've seen that the the industry needs to push harder, but it's going to take some time. But they probably will get there if if they continue in this track. I I believe. Well, one of the problems of being young is that your palate has not developed to the level of sophistication as some of these older people. So I care about how my fish tastes. No, no I think, I, I think, I, you've been... I think that plant-based analogy is really interesting. I, I had too. not thought of that because I've had, you know, plant-based alternative seafood and it doesn't taste like seafood, like what I consider seafood, yet, you know... It, plant-based products are doing just fine right so i i hadn't thought of it that way but i still i don't know i i i don't know i still feel people know what salmon tastes like in in, in a very base way and uh, you know i've tasted muddy catfish and off-flavor 
catfish and no it no you won't eat it it's not it's not tasty i don't know so. you'd be surprised though john i mean tilapia became america's favorite fish for a while and i think about one in three tilapia dishes did have that muddy flavor so you know demi you 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 might be right that there is okay so if it's off and it and it tastes muddy uh really really muddy uh yeah okay that's a problem if it's just maybe not quite the same as regular farm salmon yeah then i think i think you're you're right because i don't know that 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 sustainability outweighs quality um in in um in millennials minds but there there probably is a bit more i'd say tolerance for um for trying new things and for getting a, their palates adjusted to new flavors. I'm not saying they're going to adjust to muddy flavors, but look at some of the foods that have really caught on, you know, uh, in the past, say, five years, foods and drinks like kombucha. I mean, who would have thought Yuck. that that Yuck. is, oh, I like kombucha. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but who would have thought that these are different flavors and people are, especially young people, are willing to embrace different flavors because of the health benefits and sometimes because of the sustainability benefits. I mean, I still think they can't be muddy, but I do think there is there. I, I, I think you might be right, Demi, that there there may be tolerance for a different kind of, of flavor. I do believe the millennial won that argument, old man. Yeah, yeah, probably again, again, again. <laughs> Damn, they're they're smart. They're young, but they're smart. Yeah. Um, but I, it, it's going to be a lot of fun, and we um uh, we love covering it. Um, anytime you have, again, I just want to reiterate that the thing that excites me, and Demi, you mentioned this early on, but the thing that I think it, is really exciting is you're bringing new tech in. There is a real need for jobs um, and, or for, for, uh, for expertise. And that's great because I think this is going to draw in some excited new people from different sectors and some people that are – it's got all the elements that I think are attractive and will increasingly be a part of our global economy, which is it is a sustainable – food product when done correctly and that is a real attraction because then maybe you can start bringing people in on uh this kind of pioneering spirit and this idea that you know they're they're doing really good for the environment and it and it's just it's something a little bit more fun and more i think interesting than um conventional seafood where um you know, it's been been done the same way uh, for for quite some time, you could say. So, um, it's gonna be fun to watch. So, John, prior to getting on the podcast, you asked if you could uh, geek out on uh, seafood consumption, and you stumbled across a, a really cool report that has upended a bit the 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 very uh, statistics that the industry goes to time and time again, and that we repeat about out of home consumption, uh, in the United States. So geek away. Yes, yes, yes. I am going to geek out because I was so excited when I saw this report, it was from 
uh, uh, Johns Hopkins uh, Center for Livable Future. Uh, David Love was the lead author, but there were quite a few involved in it. And what it upended was this idea that 65 to 75% of the seafood sold is sold at restaurants. That's not true. And forever we've quoted that number as an industry, and that number comes from when you look at a dollar value. So we sell about $100 billion worth of seafood in the U.S. every year, or Americans spend that much every year. And when you look at a dollar value, yes, it's about 65% of that goes through restaurants because a piece of salmon in the restaurant is $22, and a piece of same piece of salmon in the grocery store is 13 or 12 or whatever. What this report did, oh, and I'm so excited, was it looked at the volume, which I have always, people ask me, well, wh how, what's the volume? And I always said, I don't really know, but I'm guessing 50-50. Well, I was wrong. It's 61% of uh, the seafood sold is consumed at home. So that's bought through retail supermarkets for the most part, and 39% uh, away from home at restaurants. Boom. We finally have that data. Uh, it was a glorious day for me. I called David. I don't know. I didn't know him, but we chatted for about a half an hour. And, you know, at the end, I just tipped my hat to him. I'm like, I, I, I wish this had been done decades ago, but thank you for doing it. And, you know, I think it's really important. And, you know, the upshot is that the retailers are doing a really good job. You know, we are selling fish at the grocery store, not this idea that, you know, grocery stores are failing, the fresh counter, nobody wants to go buy it. You know, they've come up with innovative ways and marketing and it's working. So, I, yeah, I, I was just I spent the whole day geeking on it. So that's it. That's all I can tell you. I mean, what's it tell you about, though, um, COVID and this this reality that we're in now um yes there'll be a day when we don't uh when we don't have covid to deal with but um but still i as we've talked about it in past podcasts uh and we've written about um lots there will be some things that won't come back to the way they were before but what do you think this tells us about what what can we expect in the future well, I mean, COVID is such a, a unique situation. I mean, this does not in any way diminish the impact that COVID is having on the food service sector and those companies that supply, you know, predominantly to it. That, that There's a lot of pain there and there will continue to be pain. It's still, even by uh, David's numbers, it's still 39, roughly 40% of all the seafood is going through food service. That's a lot of seafood. So um, the impact is, you know, we haven't seen the full impact yet, but it's, it's going to be long and it's going to be painful, I think, especially for, you know, he broke down which species um, sell more away from home than at home. So like crab and cod and shrimp and some of those species that maybe people don't cook as often at home. Those are the ones that, you know, may suffer more just uh, just because of the food service disruption. 
All right, John. Thanks for geeking out. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there, folks. We will be back next week. And remember that you can find all the seafood news that you could need on aquaculture, fisheries, processing, uh, market trends, you name it, on intrafish.com. In addition, just to keep the salmon farming theme going, we have our Salmon Summit coming up at the end of next month. It is going to be a fantastic event. We will be hearing from some of the top minds in the sector, and you'll get a look at where that industry is heading. Thanks, everyone.